This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel, by Dominique Ede. In this personal portrait of Edward Said, written by a close friend, Dominique Ade offers a fascinating and fresh presentation of his work, from his earliest writings on Joseph Conrad to his most famous texts, Orientalism and Culture and Imperialism. Ade weaves together accounts of the genesis and content of Said's work, his intellectual development, and her own reflections and personal recollections of their friendship, which began in 1979 and lasted until Said's death in 2003. Throughout, she traces the connection between personal history and theoretical options, illuminating the evolution of Said's thought. Both specialists of Said's work and newcomers will find much to learn in this rich portrait of one of the 20th century's most important intellectuals. Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel, by Dominique Ede, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In 1968, the report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, better known as the Kerner Commission, put things clearly, quote, What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it. White institutions maintain it. And white society condones it. Nowhere did white innocence take firmer root in post-World War II America than in the suburbs. Built by the New Deal order, suburbanization was government-financed and it was segregated by policy. It was also entirely contingent on a set of policies to concentrate black people in separate neighborhoods and schools with fewer resources. White suburbanites couldn't grasp it because suburbs performed an ideological magic trick that convinced their inhabitants that their homes, neighborhoods, and schools were the product of merit. And, as Pete Buttigieg put it when he attacked Medicare for All in a recent debate, a defining characteristic of American freedom under this conception is that the American people have the freedom to, quote, choose what makes the most sense for them. White middle-class suburbanites believed that they had done well and that they had the right to choose for their families whatever neighborhoods and schools they could afford. As today's guest, Matt Lassiter, writes, these suburbanites in turn adopted a new racialized class identity, that of homeowner, taxpayer, and school parent status. That identity, rather perversely, was premised on an ideology of so-called colorblindness, an ideology that rendered the political and economic history of race and class in this country invisible. 
My interview with Matt follows up on my recent episode with Lily Geismer, which was on her book, Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. Geismer explains how liberal suburban politics in Massachusetts and elsewhere, whatever its pretenses to social justice, was shaped by suburbanite class interests, antagonistic to all working class people, and deeply committed to maintaining race and class segregation. The book that I'm discussing with Matt Lassiter is The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South. It tells the story in Atlanta, Georgia, and Charlotte, North Carolina in the 1960s and 70s. His argument is big and complex, but in short, Lassiter argues that Nixon did have a Southern strategy, but that its success in realigning American politics is somewhat mythical. Many believe that Nixon won by appealing first and foremost to the most explicitly reactionary Southerners, the George Wallace-supporting rednecks engaged in massive resistance in defense of Jim Crow. Lassiter makes the case that this is an exaggeration. Instead, he argues that Nixon won over a middle-class suburbanite so-called silent majority that conceived of themselves as race-blind moderates who were insistent that their racist resistance to full school and neighborhood integration was simply a defense of their hard-earned quality of life. That means that we can't look to the southernization of American politics to explain the demise of the New Deal order and the rise of the new right. And that's because there wasn't anything particularly or exclusively southern about this story. There are two key places in Lassiter's story that I should give you some background on right now to help guide you through a rather complex discussion. The first is Atlanta, where affluent suburbanites on the city's north side mounted a campaign in favor of compliance with court-ordered school desegregation after the Supreme Court's 1954 Brown v. Board decision. At first blush, it's easy for these people to look like the good guys. After all, their enemies were the staunch segregationists, based in Georgia's Black Belt, mounting an openly racist campaign of massive resistance. But Lassiter shows that what Atlanta elites wanted was minimal desegregation in the name of keeping schools open for white children and to protect the city's program of enforced racial harmony for the purposes of economic development. They did not support the meaningful integration of metro Atlanta schools or neighborhoods. The result today is that metropolitan Atlanta is enormously segregated, with a public school enrollment that is nearly three-quarters black. The district is also disproportionately poor. Three-quarters of students qualify for free and reduced-price lunch. Because affluent black people have joined their white counterparts in suburban districts and private schools. Lassiter's other case study is Charlotte, where city elites likewise embraced this New South racial harmony as a key ingredient in corporate-led economic growth. What makes Charlotte very different is that civil rights activists and a bold federal judge won a comprehensive two-way busing system that fully integrated area schools across race and class lines. Overwhelming a revolt 
led by white middle-class parents. In other words, contrary to what Joe Biden wants you to believe, busing worked in Charlotte until a federal judge appointed by Reagan ordered that it come to an end in 1999. Charlotte schools have since resegregated. Many affluent liberals, alongside many conservatives and the so-called silent majority that has fallen in between them, have long since bought into a very narrow definition of racism that makes it primarily a matter of bigoted ideas shaping explicitly discriminatory action. This is a story that both red and blue affluent Americans tell to protect their own class position. A major point of both Lassiter and Geismer's work is that to understand racism in this country, we must understand class power and the social basis underpinning all sorts of different politics more generally. As Karl Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire, political conflicts that seem rooted in matters of policy and principle are in reality founded in, quote, material conditions of existence. The social base for politics matters, which is why it matters that Bernie Sanders is the only candidate with a mass base that is young, diverse, and working class, and why it matters that Warren, even though, and please don't get me wrong, she is far better than the median Democrat, but why it matters that she has a base that is so heavily white and professional. This doesn't mean that a social base absolutely determines politics. Not at all. But it does play a fundamental role. Anyhow, before I get this interview started, I need to ask for your financial support because I can only spend my days reading books and preparing questions and then asking those questions during interviews with people like Sylvia Federici and Michael Dawson because listeners, people just like you, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. What I find most gratifying about doing this show is receiving emails from listeners who are working in every sort of social and economic justice struggle imaginable in the United States and elsewhere all across the world. Emails that tell me that this show is helpful to you in making sense of the world in order to change it. The purpose of this podcast, why I started it, is to assist those struggles which is why we have been dedicated from day one to making every episode free and unpaywalled and so available to all. And we can only do that because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, as you've heard me say before, we do have free books to give away as a thank you. Lots of great left-wing books. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Matthew D. Lassiter, professor of history at the University of Michigan and the author of The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South from Princeton University Press and co-editor of The Myth of Southern Exceptionalism from Oxford University Press. His forthcoming book is The Suburban Crisis, Crime, Drugs, and White Middle-Class America.
Lassiter. Welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. You quote a white father in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1970 who said, quote, I have never asked what anyone in government or this country could do for me, but rather have kept my mouth shut, paid my taxes, and basically asked to be left alone. This was the voice of Nixon's suburbanite so-called silent majority, which emerged nationwide most forcefully to oppose school integration via busing. To start things off, I'd like you to give a general overview. Explain the government program of sprawl, segregation, and urban renewal that created the post-war metropolis. What sort of ideology that material reality and built environment helped make, and how it all reshaped American politics through the present. Because your book focuses on the Sun Belt in general and on Atlanta and Charlotte in particular, but your argument is that suburbanite politics are particular to neither the South nor the Sun Belt. So white suburbanites had always lived in racially and economically segregated communities before World War II. They tended to be more elite, perhaps with a small African-American or other servant class. But after World War II, the federal government really jump-started the suburban boom with the GI Bill. The Federal Housing Administration subsidized low-income mortgage, low-interest mortgages for families, almost always white, male-headed households. And Tens of millions of Americans moved to the suburbs from the cities and from the countryside during the decades after World War II. They were systematically living in racially segregated neighborhoods, also segregated by income. And this was a federal policy throughout the country that reshaped metropolitan regions in alliance with local banks and other other financial institutions. And so I start the book about the suburban South, quoting a white father protesting a court order busing between the inner city black neighborhoods of Charlotte and the outlying white suburbs by saying, nobody ever did anything for me. I've accomplished this all by myself. I'm a hardworking, taxpaying citizen. The government hasn't done anything for me at all. And the truth is the government did everything to create neighborhoods like this. They were not only racially segregated for white families, African-American families, Mexican-American families and other states tended to live only in particular urban neighborhoods, urban renewal policies, federal highway construction policies and zoning policies all worked to segregate the metropolitan regions of the country. And by the 1960s, this is really what you could call American-style racial apartheid, not the old Southern Jim Crow system, but a system where people, white, black, and other non-white groups lived in neighborhoods that were sorted by race and class in every metropolitan region of the country. You write that in Atlanta, there was a quote, tacit understanding that economic development required moderate race relations, which in turn required segregation. 
a, quote, spatially segregated but functionally integrated metropolis. And much the same was true in Charlotte. Explain these cities' corporate leadership structure, which used at-large city council seats to ensure the small elite's domination, and how these Sunbelt suburban cities employed urban renewal, segregation, suburbanization, and annexation as part of this larger racial and economic governance strategy, and then why that chaotic dynamic they had set in motion contained too many contradictions and ultimately backfired. So in most Southern cities, the so-called New South cities, Atlanta, Charlotte, that sort of city, the Chamber of Commerce was effectively the municipal government. Almost all elected officials lived in a small number of affluent white neighborhoods. They had at-large voting districts, which was sold as a good government reform to avoid the political machines of the urban north with the ward systems. But what it created was a new kind of political machine where the business elites and affluent white neighbors had disproportionate power in city governments. And the zoning boards, the development commissions were all stacked with bankers and other officials. There was almost no line between the private pro-growth development industry and the municipal government. And the argument that I make in the book is that these city officials, their goal was to become become truly American cities by maintaining racial peace. And they looked at what was happening in Birmingham, Alabama, and Detroit, Michigan during World War II, where the friction between working class white and working class black neighborhoods, there were a lot of bombings, a lot of racial violence when there was proximity between black and white neighborhoods. And their idea was that racial peace would come through residential segregation and that residential segregation was really the American way. It was a modern way of managing race relations, of creating an orderly metropolitan region. They believed in annexing new suburbs so they would maintain a middle-class tax base and a white voting majority in these cities. They supported the consolidation of city and county governments and school systems. And the idea was that you would have, you wouldn't have a metropolitan region that would be fragmented like in Detroit or like in Philadelphia with lots of different governments. It would all be under the centralized control of a business-led urban government. So you would have residential segregation to maintain racial peace, but then you would have a functionally integrated metropolis so they could control growth and development policies and make sure that the tax base stayed with the urban center. And so racial moderation wasn't so much a concern about racial justice, but just the overriding priority of ensuring the absence of unsightly racial conflict. Racial moderation was never about racial justice. It was a more sophisticated strategy to maintain racial and economic injustice than the full-blown extremism of the Ku Klux Klan 
of the violent resistance to integration and civil rights. And one of the ideas that I had going into the book was lots of people watch Eyes on the Prize. You see the stories of white mobs in Little Rock attacking black students going into the schools. We see Bull Connor's story. And it seems like racism in the South was a white working class and deep South problem. But if you look at the historical record, an anodyne banker in Charlotte who would never say the N-word out loud had far more impact on creating a racially segregated society than a relatively disempowered white working class person. And so I wanted to ask, where is the real power in the South and in the nation? And it's in the corporate and affluent suburban communities and they supported segregation. They opposed overt violence because they thought it was bad for business. They disliked George Wallace-style explicit racism because they thought it was, you know, gauche. But this was a kind of country club, corporate-centered racial politics that was moderate in language and was against violence but it was nothing nothing to do with racial justice. Which the Atlanta slogan, the city too busy to hate, serves to obscure. Exactly. And the city too busy to hate, I will say there, there was an aspect of this politics of racial moderation that civil rights groups were able to leverage for some gains. So in Atlanta the white business elite had an alliance with the black political establishment. The black political establishment supported Mayor William Hartsfield, a white moderate mayor. The very same kind of arrangement was happening in Charlotte. And black political elites got something out of the bargain. When push came to shove, they got the peaceful accommodation, peaceful integration of public accommodations they eventually got these white elites to support school desegregation plans that let a small number of middle-class black students into white schools. So white elites, white racial moderates, were willing to compromise a bit on the racial caste line of absolute Jim Crow, but it was about maintaining a larger system of class power of white supremacy with some with some exceptions in the urban South. The dynamics of the politics in Atlanta and Georgia are really fascinating. You have in Atlanta this campaign for moderate but very minimal integration led by affluent housewives who are married to professionals living on the city's leafy suburban north side. And then their opponents are the or were the massive resistance segregationists, the people we think of as the segregationists in conventional civil rights history, who in Georgia's case are based in the black belt political machine in the south of the state. And they at times won allegiance from poor whites both in Atlanta and in the state's upland region. Notably, with given all the conflict between the, the metro region and the state both were run very undemocratically. The state was run undemocratically in a way to ensure the black belt's dominance vis-a-vis -vis the city, whereas the city, in turn, was run undemocratically to ensure 
that the elite North Side people ran the whole city. What were the, the, the political, economic, and social contours of this split in white Southern politics in general? And how did it shape the fight over integration in Georgia and Atlanta in particular? Massive resistance to the Brown decision would never have happened if Georgia had a democratic, small d democratic and fair system of representation. Georgia had what was called the county unit system, which was effectively the U.S. Senate uh, model of representation for almost all elections in the state of Georgia. And so it allowed a very small number or a very large number of rural counties with small population to control state politics. And this type of egregious malapportionment was actually common throughout the United States until the Supreme Court decision in 1962 in Baker versus Carr and some subsequent decisions with the one person, one vote standard. And so this is true in California. It was true in Georgia. It's true in a lot of states that Rural interests, often allied with extractive corporations, controlled state politics, and it meant that progressives had to focus either on urban municipal politics or on going straight to the national level. And so in Georgia, after the Brown decision, the state legislature adopted a massive resistance plan where they said they would close all public schools in the state rather than accept any level of integration at all. And what I show in the book is that this was abhorrent to affluent white neighborhoods in Atlanta who realized that their neighborhoods were segregated by income and by race, that very few black families could even afford to live in their neighborhoods if the housing market was fair, which it certainly was not, and that complying with the Brown decision by allowing a small number of black students to come across the racial divide into white schools in affluent areas would not really disrupt the larger racial and class system at all. It was very different in the working class white neighborhoods that were adjacent to black neighborhoods on the other side of Atlanta in the south and west side of the city. These were neighborhoods where black families were moving in, white families were moving out, and they believed that the solution that the wealthy Atlanta residents supported, minimal integration of public schools, along with maintaining housing segregation in affluent areas, they believe that that solution would not work for them because their neighborhoods would just flip to all black and they would all move out to the suburbs and Cobb County and elsewhere, which is exactly what Precisely what happened. They did, yes. But the parts of Atlanta that oppose massive resistance are still very exclusive today. They're almost all white still. They were secure residentially and not really worried that a manageable amount of desegregation would upend the arrangements in which they lived. It's remarkable white elites engineered both an increase in segregation during the post-war era after World War II 
while simultaneously displacing the blame from racism from themselves onto poor and working class white people. That's correct. And I want to emphasize that this is what happened everywhere in the United States, that the nation told itself a story, which was the real problem is the South and especially the deep South. The racism is in Alabama and Mississippi. Atlanta told itself a story. The real problem is Alabama, Mississippi, and the working class whites on the South side of Atlanta. They're the real racists. And in other cities, white liberals told themselves a story that the problem was the South and the working class whites in their city. But the working class, poor, blue collar, white neighborhoods didn't actually have that much power. They had the power to fight back, the power to leave, the power to lash out, but they were not secure in the ways that affluent white neighborhoods were. And so the model that really emerged in the Southern cities like Atlanta and Charlotte after Brown was use public policies, zoning, highway development, low-income housing placement and the rest to create a segregated metropolis by race and class, except a small number of black students into white schools to comply with the Brown decision. And they explicitly modeled those desegregation plans on plans that border South states like Delaware had adopted after the Brown decision and existing pupil assignment formulas in Northern states. And then say that you've complied, that racism is no longer a problem, that the laws have changed, and that this is the national model, that now everything, all racial inequality is really about how the market works. It may be some private attitudes, but they argued that public policy had nothing to do with it anymore because the Jim Crow laws were gone. Yet Charlotte is a, a remarkable story because it goes a step deeper than a lot of integration politics went in the, the U.S. It, it it begins with, with a, sa- a self-satisfied white elite that is using racial segregation to maintain this image of racial harmony. But in response... The NAACP files a lawsuit and a federal judge orders two-way busing that sparks a populist middle-class revolt. The middle-class suburbanites and traditional elite then win a busing formula, the one we would expect, which exempts them from having to participate in busing and integration. And then finally, and perhaps most remarkably, an interracial alliance from below emerges to fight for class and race equitable busing and development. Whereas in Atlanta, as, as we've discussed, this, this class-denying form of racial desegregation ultimately just perpetuates massive new forms of race and class segregation. Why did Charlotte, at least temporarily, with such a more just outcome than Atlanta? So I chose Charlotte as a city to focus on because I wanted to test out the hypothesis that the racial and ideological views of white parents were not the determining factor in whether they stayed in integrated public schools or not, but that actually public policies like annexation and 
how expansive or restrictive the school district was were actually more important. And I also chose Charlotte because of the mythology that busing was a disastrous liberal failure. You you can hear this in the way we remember the Boston busing crisis. And the way Joe Biden defends himself today. Exactly. (laughs) Most recently, Joe Joe Biden saying busing was a failure. And the, the truth is, limited busing plans that restricted integration to working class white areas and black neighborhoods did fail in that they triggered white flight and violence. But expansive busing plans, it seems counterintuitive, but the more expansive the integration remedy, the higher the level of stable integration because there's nowhere for people to move. So if I could back up just a bit, the the most important thing that happened in Charlotte to create the nation's most racially integrated metropolitan school system by the mid-70s was actually in 1960, when the white business elite engineered the consolidation of the city school system with the surrounding county. And at that time, they did it because they were worried that the white kids in the county were not getting a good enough education to be workers in the new corporate in the new bank of america or i guess it was nation's bank at the time they're the new nation's bank south <laughs> exactly and the and the regional branch offices that they were recruiting and they thought the educational standards in the county were too limited so they consolidated the school system in mecklenburg county with the city of charlotte and at the same time north carolina like a number of other states in the South and the West, has very urban-friendly annexation laws. So they repeatedly annexed new suburban developments almost as soon as they got built. And what this meant, they were in no way thinking that this would be affected by the Brown decision because nobody really at the time in 1960 was imagining busing at the level that it would come in the 1970s. And just to pause you, not for no reason, a decade after Brown, which was 1954, the government had done next to nothing to integrate schools. Nearly 90% of black students remained in segregated institutions. Not only next to nothing, but white liberals had passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by specifically putting in there that there would not need to be any busing to overcome racial imbalance. And that was the cost of passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because the NAACP had sued several Northern and Western school districts for intentional racial segregation in the early 1960s. And the courts had mostly exempted those districts by saying that actually the school segregation is caused by housing markets and housing markets are private, not public responsibility, which was an erroneous interpretation of history, but it was the prevailing one. And so even in 1964, the Civil Rights Act says mandatory desegregation will only be restricted to the explicit de jure segregation of the, and what they meant was the Jim Crow South. And the idea was de facto segregation, segregation because of individual and market decisions 
in this theory was what was going on in the rest of the country. So back to Charlotte, the, the white political leaders in Charlotte and in Atlanta and everywhere else immediately said, well, we have de facto segregation too. We've complied with the Brown decision. We've led a small number of black students into white schools with freedom of choice. And any remaining segregation in our city is de facto. It's based on the market. It's based on where people live. And that has nothing to do with any policies that the school system is responsible for. So the NAACP chose Charlotte as a test case for really a a new constitutional argument when they filed the lawsuit in uh, the late 1960s that housing segregation was not de facto, but it was actually de jure, that it was state-supported and state-sanctioned for all the reasons that we previously discussed, that where people lived was based on government policies, racially exclusionary mortgage subsidies, clearing black neighborhoods out with urban renewal and highway development, always building public housing projects in the already segregated non-white neighborhoods, using exclusionary zoning to keep neighborhoods both racially and economically homogenous. And the NAACP told that whole story in court to a federal judge who was from North Carolina, and he had a conversion experience and said, I lived here for a long time, and I never knew that that's why the city was so segregated. I just thought people lived where they wanted to live or could afford to live. And so he ordered, the judge, James McMillan, ordered a two-way busing plan which was itself revolutionary. He said it's not enough to just send the black students out to the white suburban schools. You have to send the white students from the suburbs into the black schools. And not only... Because there's this notion, there's this implicit understanding that integration is both minimal and one way, that it's a small number of, of black students coming into white schools. God forbid, vice versa. Exactly. And the idea at the time was integration was about assimilation. Black students, especially deserving black students, would find their way into white schools through freedom of choice plans. And Charlotte actually traveled to uh, Syracuse and Buffalo in New York, which had faced pressure for desegregation and responded by closing all the black schools and sending the black students out just to the white schools. And so they initially tried to have a one-way busing plan. They wanted to close all black schools. African-Americans in Charlotte protested at the loss of their community institutions. And they said, integration is about resources. It's not just about sitting next to white students. We want our schools to become good schools too. And so there was a massive protest movement for several years by white suburbanites In Charlotte, as you referenced earlier, it went all the way up to the Nixon administration, caused a lot of turmoil, and is really a five-year saga. You know, leaders of the city who lived almost all in the wealthiest white neighborhoods repeatedly tried to impose a two-way busing plan that would have been what Boston's became, exchanging the economically marginal white 
neighborhoods with the black neighborhoods and the judge and the NAACP kept resisting and ultimately required the city to have a fair busing plan in which white students and black students in every neighborhood would spend some time outside of their so-called neighborhood school. Tellingly, the the anti-busing suburbanites in Charlotte, they were organized with this group called the Concerned Parents Association, and they described their movement as a, quote, struggle for freedom. They even sang, we shall overcome in a protest. One of the most remarkable things about the story you tell is how early this so-called colorblind philosophy takes root, really amidst the civil rights movement rather than after it. How did the built environment of the the suburbs facilitate the creation of this this bedrock sensibility of white suburban innocence, which which then allowed suburbanites to conceive of themselves as an oppressed class subject to reverse discrimination to justify their own white backlash or maybe even really frontlash against civil rights? What I found studying Charlotte in depth at the grassroots level is that for most white residents of the city and the suburbs, the idea that the government had produced the racial landscapes on which they lived was almost impossible to process. The NAACP convinced a federal judge of this by bringing in all sorts of experts and having weeks of testimony, but this is not a story of American history that most white Americans want to hear. It's not one that has worked very often, even in the federal courts. And it took a pretty extraordinary NAACP lawyer, Julius Chambers, and a federal judge, James McMillan, to team up and push integration law beyond where it had ever gone before, especially the idea that integration had to mean some burden sharing by white families. What was most interesting about the Concerned Parents Association, the anti-busing group in Charlotte, is that they kept the racial extremists out of their group because they took the stance that if the court wanted to send black students into their neighborhoods, they would not fight that because they recognize the value of better educational opportunities but that they would fight forever to keep their children, white children, from traveling into the ghetto, an inner, an inner city, a ghetto. I mean, actually, many of these black neighborhoods were solid working class, middle class. They were portrayed as, uh, you know, j- jungles. They yeah. were imagined as, as the, you know, the ghetto, everything on that side of town. Most whites in Charlotte had never practically been to that side of town. They just imagined it as a place of crime and danger and poverty, just just as happened in most every city in the country. And it's not surprising that, you know, a bunch of white collar professionals in Charlotte would think this. I think an argument I make in the book is that when, uh, when pushed, this is what almost all white households in the United States believe, whether they're liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican, very few people are willing to stop resource hoarding and protecting their investments in their children's education through purchasing homes 
in neighborhoods with restrictive zoning and actually accept true equal opportunity. So back to your question, the paradox, I guess you could say, or the contradiction is that the Concerned Parents Association made an argument based on what I call colorblind individualism. They said, nobody ever helped us. We accomplished everything we got on our own hard work. And so if you want to send some black kids into our neighborhoods, okay, but under no circumstances are we going to have our children leave. And it was a kind of racial innocence, innocence from history, the sense that the, the historically invalid sense that government had nothing to do with the advantages that they had accrued. And at the same time, it allowed them to believe that they lived in a meritocratic society of equal opportunity and that their neighborhood schools with their exclusionary zoning, with the segregated black neighborhoods on the other side of town were just the natural product of the market at work rather than the result of public policy. And as you probably want to discuss, Richard Nixon told the country the same story. Many judges adopted that story. That is still, I would say, the prevailing attitude of white suburbs and perhaps white Americans in general, even still today. Yeah, I mean, you have a great quote from 2004, but from David Brooks, a David Brooks column, which is really iconically ignorant, representative of this broader, pervasive, conventional ignorance. He, he wrote, quote, it's as if Zeus came down and started plopping vast developments in the middle of farmland and the desert overnight. Boom. A master plan community. Boom. A big box mall. Boom. A rec center and 4,000 soccer fields. Boom. The food courts come and the people follow. How many times in American history have 300,000-person communities materialized practically out of nothing? At least in, when this happens in China, when megacities appear to emerge overnight, there's a sense of like, wow, look at, the, look at all of the, the power and resources that the Chinese government has mobilized. But in, in the U.S., there is this total naturalization and normalization of the suburban-built environment and the urban one, which rests upon it having no history. What was it exactly and is it about the built environment constructed by post-war liberalism that did as much, if not more, than conservative political ideology to perversely turn the New Deal's working class base into suburbanite swing voters and reactionaries? And, and second, what, what does the fact that this racism of the future, that's in embryonic form at the time that the period you're studying, was a racism that was infrastructurally laundered. What does that tell us about the danger of having a superficially ideational account of racism? So post-war liberalism, New Deal programs created metropolitan sprawl and created the idea among white households in particular that their investment was in their home and in the school system and over time, and I argue in the book, that this, real, this built environment made the political identities of homeowner, taxpayer, and school parent the dominant political identities. I would never argue that class consciousness, that is class consciousness. It's a middle class 
upper middle class consciousness and it's very racialized but union politics still matters but you look at a place like michigan and an iconic blue collar union suburb like macomb county and been studied for the reagan democrats and you start to see those patterns that people are voting based on their homeowner their taxpayer their property tax investment their children's schools as much as on workplace considerations. And so I think a couple of things happen that are underappreciated when we look back on modern American politics. And the first is that these processes were more important than conservative or Republican efforts to manipulate racial backlash. They laid the groundwork for a new kind of racial and class politics in the United States where people really articulated their politics and understood their interests through the neighborhood, through the home, through the school, and that sort of thing. And I think that overrode partisan identity, that it maybe transcended partisan identity, that for most people, how they voted in a presidential election was one thing, but how they understood their investments in local space was really powerful. And the the reason white liberals are completely part of this story as well is that this kind of built environment produced by an apartheid system of racial and class segregation meant that you did not have to hold individual attitudes of racism to participate in and reinforce a racist political structure. So you want your children to go to the good school that's close to your house. And of course you bought the house because that school was there. And at the individual level, that's a rational decision, perhaps self-interested, but most people can understand it. But at the broader level, public policies created these landscapes and it no longer requires overt racism to be sustaining a, a racist and class structured society. Yeah, because there continues to be this conventional wisdom, maybe particularly amongst liberal elites today, that that portrays how people vote and how they verbally express their politics or worldview as the key to understanding a person or group's politics, position, and power. And and, and your book is is a real rebuttal to that because you have this this story that shows how people expressing a a variety of ideologies, but particularly a, an, an explicitly self-consciously moderate one, lead a massive racist elite, economically elite reaction against busing. While, while in Charlotte, there's this remarkable alliance for equitable busing between bringing together left-leaning black Democrat, Democratic voting black people, and George Wallace voting white working class people against the Nixon voting affluent suburbanites. So I was really interested in the book and what I call the class and the geographic divisions among white voters. And there are times in American politics when in a presidential election, say 1972, when Richard Nixon won 49 states, 1984, when Reagan won 49 states, when the Republicans can assemble a coalition that really overcomes most of the geographic and class divisions. But I actually think in times of crisis, 
those divisions emerge and they can't be contained easily within the political system. The example, so I'm very critical of the idea that the Southern strategy is the reason that the Republicans came to party in the South. And I would point out that there were four times when political elites really tried during times of civil rights movement activism to implement a explicit racial backlash strategy in which they were appealing to the South as white Southerners who were besieged. 1948 with the Dixiecrats, 1964 with Barry Goldwater, 1968 with Wallace, and then Richard Nixon tried to do it in 1970. For the midterms. For the midterm election, Kevin Phillips said, there's so much backlash against the civil rights movement and busing and the rest that you're going to be able to get all the white Southerners to vote for for the Republicans. You'll get all the Wallace voters and all the suburban moderates. And he was a Republican strategist who coined the term the Southern strategy. Exactly. And all of those efforts failed. All four of those efforts failed because in a time of civil rights crisis, it turns out that what working class whites on the South Side Atlanta or in Alabama want is just different from what affluent whites in privileged neighborhoods want. So the example you tell from Charlotte is a really important one. The elites tried to impose an unfair busing plan to exempt themselves and have black neighborhoods and blue collar white neighborhoods share the burden and nobody else. And then the African-American and the working class white groups teamed up together, went to the judge and said, we want this to be fair. Now it was a temporary coalition. It's the dream of a multi-racial working class politics. It's the rainbow coalition dream. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of times we say, well, this is impossible because of racial backlash. But the flip side is that neither party tries very often Obviously, the Republicans don't try, but the Democrats don't try very often to assemble that kind of coalition either. And back to your earlier question, one of the main developments of the Democratic Party has been seeing the suburban professionals, the white collar technocrats as the most important swing voter that they cover and believing that they can create a coalition with upscale suburban and urban liberals and moderates along with non-white voters. And it's a very unstable coalition. Maybe you can win an election once in a while with that kind of coalition, but it's not a coalition that will actually implement public policies of racial and economic justice because affluent white voters do not support those policies when they challenge their privilege at the local level. And so for For me, the most important thing is not always how a particular neighborhood or state votes in a presidential election, but what are their positions on public policies like exclusionary versus inclusionary zoning, genuine equal educational opportunity versus resource hoarding, and the rest. And most of the time, there's a consensus in American politics against the progressive position on those issues, and both parties support it. 
and the roots of consensus politics in this country when it comes to bad things happening are often the suburbs. Well, I think you can look at the Joe Biden saga recently and and see. So Richard Nixon responded to the white silent majority voters in places like Charlotte by aggressively opposing busing. And scholars look back on this now and they call it the Southern strategy. Richard Nixon adopted the Southern strategy. And I don't agree. I look back on it and I think Richard Nixon was not appealing to the most extreme white voters who opposed any level of integration. That fight was pretty much... That was George Wallace in 68. That's right. Whereas Nixon, Nixon voters were people who wanted to say, I am not racist. Nixon was... a and the, Exactly. While they were doing their racism. <laughs> Nixon was appealing to the same white suburban voters in Atlanta and Charlotte that he was appealing to in California and Michigan and New York. And Joe Biden was appealing to those very same voters when he opposed the Metropolitan Busing Plan in Wilmington a few years later. George McGovern was very ambivalent in the 1972 election about supporting federal court order busing on a major scale because he knew he could read polls and he knew that 85 to 90% of white voters opposed those kind of policies. That was beyond what the American you know, party system was willing to support. And I really don't even think it's accurate to say court order busing was a liberal policy. It's something that the civil rights movement went through the courts to implement, and there was not much support at all from even liberal Democrats. It was beyond what the legislative process or the party system would ever support. And the proof of that is that by the mid-1970s, the Supreme Court pretty much clamps down on two-way busing between cities and suburbs in the Millican decision in Detroit, which means you only get it in the places where they were already consolidated. The Supreme Court issues a series of decisions saying exclusionary zoning is constitutional and housing shuts down the fair housing movement. And there is no effort in American politics, no real effort from within the party system to do anything about it because it was part of a bipartisan consensus that economic and racial privilege in metropolitan areas is not something that we're going to address at a structural level. Yeah. So so even with this massive conflict over school integration, there's there's very little movement on treating that issue of which school segregation is a symptom, housing segregation. And and so even Charlotte's success was ultimately vulnerable to being undone by a conservative shift in the judiciary, which is indeed, sadly, precisely what happened ultimately. My question is, you argue that, that we can only solve school segregation by moving beyond busing and attacking housing segregation. Is it also true that we can only get to the root of housing segregation by in turn confronting income inequality and and thus perhaps capitalism as well? Great question. So you could say that schools are a symptom of housing, although that was a deliberate policy choice to, to assign people to neighborhood schools. That itself is relatively recent. And what conservatives, liberals, and everybody else in power said when confronted 
with busing was the schools didn't cause this problem. The real problem is housing. Now they disagreed on whether housing segregation was just market driven and innocent and de facto versus public policies. But there's some logic to that, that Charlotte and several other similarly situated Southern cities end up with a pretty stable racially integrated public school system by the mid 1970s because they integrated every school at roughly the same 70% white, 30% African-American formula. There was no reason to move to another neighborhood because almost all the schools were integrated that way. They put similar resources into every school because they knew white students wouldn't go to schools without excellent resources. So all the formerly black schools got a huge investment. And that seemed like a good solution, but it only lasted for about a decade. People's kids grow up, but they stay in their neighborhoods. New people were moving to Charlotte. They were living outside of the county, commuting even further distances. And so the percentage of the school system increasingly became near majority African-American, which put strains on the busing plan. A lot of people moved into Charlotte from outside the South. And there was a idea that was really popular among civil rights activists that the newcomers had no experience with integration and they didn't understand why their children should have to be sent outside their neighborhood. And so the Charlotte school system came under a lot of pressure in terms of its integration plan. And the ultimate story is a lawsuit filed by a white parent, a Northern transplant, a reverse discrimination lawsuit in which he said it was discrimination against his daughter for her not to be allowed to go to the neighborhood school. And a federal judge who had been an activist parent in the anti-busing movement a generation earlier was the one who agreed that it was reverse discrimination to use race in student assignments. And now Charlotte, sadly, Charlotte Mecklenburg is one of the most racially segregated school systems in North Carolina and really has reverted back to its kind of pre-1970 situation, at least in terms of racial imbalance. What does that say about the overall role played by, by local power brokers grassroots movements from the left, center, and right, and, and the judiciary. Because on the one hand, initially, it was this single federal judge who created this unusually wide window for desegregation in Charlotte. But but that wouldn't have been possible if the NAACP hadn't filed this really path-breaking lawsuit that documented the de jure roots of, of housing segregation. And the equitable, the class and race equitable busing wouldn't have happened without black and white working class parents organizing together. On the other hand, the anti-busing suburban reaction in Charlotte with the Concerned Parents Association helped set off this this national political, massive national political reaction that ultimately reshaped the judiciary, leading to this former CPA activist anti-busing judge overturning the original decision. And and so you write they, that the, the anti-busing activists, quote, lost the local battle, but won the war. 
So your point earlier about racial capitalism, I think is crucial to really put at the center here. In Charlotte, the busing order is overturned and resegregation happens in part because Charlotte never implemented a housing integration remedy like they did a school integration remedy. They didn't implement a housing integration remedy because the federal courts stopped the civil rights movement from challenging exclusionary zoning. And so there are a couple lessons here, I think. First, through a fairly unusual set of circumstances, cities like Charlotte and some others enjoyed relatively integrated schools, but the Supreme Court stopped that in the Detroit case from becoming the national model. And so the political system, the executive branch and the legislative branch never supported meaningful, comprehensive integration in this country, and they never have. I'm not sure they ever will. There's no president that has explicitly made the racial and class integration of suburbs a formal front and center policy goal. That includes Barack Obama. And in fact, Nixon probably had, ironically, he didn't like it and he ended up firing him, but one of the most pro-integration HUD secretaries, George Romney, who actually did want to integrate the suburbs and Nixon got rid of him because of it. George Romney tried to use uh, the federal government subsidies for sewers and highways and the rest to force affordable housing and get rid of exclusionary zoning in the early 70s. And Starting with suburban Detroit. Exactly. And Nixon basically um, stopped it almost immediately and went in the complete and opposite direction. And like in Charlotte, there was a grassroots revolt in suburban Detroit, huge outpouring of protest to Richard Nixon. So there's a larger pattern here, which is the the civil rights groups go through the courts and win some victories. There's a huge backlash, white residents protest, and then you end up getting different judges. Congress is going to support the suburban strategy and that sort of privilege. And So by the mid-1970s, Nixon had put four justices on the Supreme Court, and they really shut down the efforts to integrate the metropolis by race or by class. And the the lesson I take is the, you know, how thoroughly politicized the court, the federal judiciary always has been, that it seemed in places like Charlotte that a federal judge's decision was relatively insulated from political backlash. But over time, the 100,000 white parents in Charlotte who joined the anti-busing movement won the war, even if they lost the local battle, because they impressed on the Nixon administration and on many liberals like Joe Biden that white suburbanites were not going to tolerate these kind of policies. And this led to new judges in the courts and decisions that really drew a line saying, we won't go this far. And that's where you get back to the question of what kinds of uh, justice remedies are even possible under a system of racial capitalism and a system, political system that's very responsive to powerful groups like wealthy, wealthy and upper middle class white homeowners. 
this notion of, of race-conscious anti-racism itself being a form of racism has become so central to American politics. It's the main language within which white grievance is articulated. And also, as we've been discussing, it's a legal philosophy. And perhaps the pinnacle of it came in 2007 when Chief Justice John Roberts, I think he was the chief then. Yes, I don't remember when he, he was, was elevated. In a ruling striking down voluntary busing in Seattle and Louisville, wrote, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, which, you know, a sentence that immediately made anyone familiar with the history of racial capitals in this country just made their brain smelt immediately. Uh, at first blush, it's easy to see this as purely cynical. But cynicism is rarely a, a good explanation for pervasive ideologies. My question is, why is it that this ideology of colorblindness combined with the notion that whites are are victims of reverse racism, which is premised on this initial colorblindness, why has that become such a compelling and enduring worldview for so many? So the first way to combat that is to say that that view of whites as victims is incredibly deeply rooted in American political culture, maybe European imperialism even, that you go into a new area, you rearrange it for your purposes, and then tell yourself a story that you're the victims, victims of the Native Americans, victims of the you know, reconstruction, the story of the South told, or the birth of the nation story, victims. Whenever power and privilege are challenged, there's a, there's a way to process this by saying, this is unfair. You're trying to take our power away. And so... Like, go back to the American Revolution, where the king's infringing upon white settlers' rights to migrate west and dispossess native people of their land is considered a form of slavery. Yeah, exactly. So when Robert said the way to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race, on the one hand, that's an extraordinary historical analogy for the Supreme Court to make, basically equating Jim Crow segregation with justice-oriented affirmative action remedies. It's extraordinary that we have a political system and an absence of historical knowledge in which that can get a commanding majority on the Supreme Court. But if you go back, say back to the 1960s, a majority of white voters in California in 1964 repealed the state's fair housing law by arguing that fair housing was actually reverse discrimination against white homeowners who deserve the right to dispense with their property however they wished, and that it wasn't racism or racial discrimination at all to choose who you'll sell your house or rent your property to. And we talked about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, where liberals, to get it passed, had to put a provision in there that it would only apply to explicit Jim Crow segregation, and it was not designed to have any impact on what they called the racial imbalance of northern and western cities and school systems. And the anti-busing movement in Charlotte picked up on this existing idea 
of white innocence, that any challenge to white class privilege was in fact reverse discrimination. What made them so powerful is that this was really a mass movement, hundreds of thousands of people in various cities joining an anti-busing crusade, demanding protection from the Nixon administration, stiffening the resolve of politicians to protect them from what they considered to be the overreach of the civil rights movement. And in that sense, it's a very powerful ideology. We see it today. I, I do think that it's worse today in the sense that the idea that non-white activists are attacked for being racist, for exposing racism, I didn't see that a lot in the research that I did in the 1960s. There was lots of complaints about reverse discrimination, white innocence, that this isn't fair, but people were not denying that there were actual problems. The black schools were so inequitable and underfunded that there was a recognition that the civil rights movement was onto something at least when they're trying to enforce the Brown decision. And the debate was more about what the remedy should be. And now it's not just a fringe group attacking, you know, they used to, the extreme segregationists used to attack civil rights activists for being communists. And now it seems to be much more pervasive and media fueled and on the right attacking anybody who points out racial injustice as the real racist. And it's a kind of, Alice in Wonderland world to live in. One key origin of of this Alice in Wonderland, origin point of this Alice in Wonderland world that we've alluded to a bit is this really consequential conceptual distinction between de jure segregation and de facto segregation. And it sort of starts out, it seems, as though that the South is seen as the site of legal segregation, of segregation that's imposed by law, whereas the North is seen as a place where segregation is happening because, who knows, it's just happening. Uh, but then suburbanite whites in the South, who are resisting desegregation, declare that Southern segregation was also de facto segregation. And then even hardcore segregationist groups, the massive resistors in the South, across the Deep South, did the same, launching a regional fairness campaign that accused the North of hypocrisy. And they weren't entirely wrong. The North was hypocritical because it was quite the same North and South, and it was a system of apartheid in both. Explain the, the origins and function of this pernicious conceptual distinction between de facto and de jure segregation, how it was used to defend segregation in the North and then the South, and how historically and through today, it obscures the full history of what you call the, quote, counterattack on racial liberalism nationwide. So because almost all civil rights claims go through the courts, the distinction between de facto and de jure segregation emerged because courts require evidence of intentional discrimination in order to order remedies. And so it, it became important to create an evidence base showing the deliberate segregation and inequality of public schools and on and on. 
And by doing that, by proving that certain racial arrangements are intentionally discriminatory, it then had the constitutive effect of implying that everything else outside the scope of the order was de facto, was the market rather than the law. And it's also important to realize how how shallow and deficient historical memory really is. So, for example, racial covenants restricting non-whites from moving into um, suburban neighborhoods and urban neighborhoods were common throughout the country. They were most common outside the South in the early to mid-1900s. Then the civil rights movement attacked them and said this is actually state-sponsored segregation because the courts enforce racial covenants under property rights. And in the Shelley versus Kramer decision in 1948, the Supreme Court said, that's true. Racial covenants are a form of state-sponsored segregation and discrimination. In other words, de jure segregation was everywhere in the country, 1948. By 1956, the Brown decision comes along. It applies to the South and the border states that have Jim Crow segregation, it seems. And the whole idea that just a few years before, the housing arrangements from racial covenants were de jure segregation is just gone from the way people talked about racial politics in metropolitan areas. The neighborhoods hadn't changed all that much by then. And so after the Brown decision, it seemed like it applied to the southern states and some border states like Kansas and Delaware that had official Jim Crow systems. And the de facto idea really became popularized in the late 1950s in New York City. After the Brown decision, civil rights activists started pushing for the desegregation of public schools in New York City. And actually the civil rights movement adopted the de facto language first. And they thought erroneously that de facto would be a way to shame and expose Northern style segregation so that they would point out actually New York City has de facto segregation. And white leaders in New York City denied that they had de facto segregation in the late 50s and early 60s because they they denied that they had any segregation at all. And it's only after the 1964 Civil Rights Act says de facto segregation is permissible and courts in cases outside the South said de jure segregation is unconstitutional, but de facto segregation is no problem. That's when everybody started saying, oh, all remaining segregation is de facto. Southern states and cities started doing it. Northern and Western cities started doing it. And so suddenly everybody who's defending segregation is claiming it's de facto because de facto under the evolving judicial standard means unintentional, market-based, nothing to do with the government. And that's what the, the Charlotte case really challenged in 1969 and the early 70s. And it's premised on this false division between American capitalism and American racism, and that then allows market-driven segregation to be presumed to be okay because it has to be legitimate because the very legitimacy of capitalism 
rests upon class inequality being seen as normal and natural. So, Dan, this is a really good point. And you could argue that all segregation de facto or de jure is wrong and should be remedied. All discrimination, economic and racial, because so much of the civil rights and justice movements went through the courts, it became a a kind of important project to say, is this really racial discrimination or is it economic discrimination? Racial discrimination is illegal. Economic discrimination is legal. Is this de jure and therefore illegal segregation? Is it de facto and therefore permissible segregation? And that's because the, the courts are the way that we talk about this. There is a different way, maybe a social justice discourse where we could transcend those categories and just talk about the market and racial capitalism. And inequality and domination. Exactly. And so much of my work has been seeking to prove the de jure roots of allegedly de facto organ, uh, segregation because that's the way, that's the only way to get fair remedies in right. this country. But it's the different... only language the courts speak. Exactly. But there is a way to step back, talk about this at a, at a more meta level as inequalities produced by racial capitalism. But the courts in this country and the political process cannot even understand the concept of racial capitalism. I mean, th- th- <laughs> that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, they, they can only order remedies for specific wrongs committed by specific actors. And something that's so comprehensive and abstract, it's just outside the, really the boundaries of the American political system to grapple with, unless, unless we have social movements, protests, and rearrangements of the political system itself. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Our History is the Future, Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Long Tradition of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. In 2016, a small protest encampment at the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota initially established to block construction of the Dakota Access oil pipeline grew to be the largest indigenous protest movement in the 21st century. Water protectors knew this battle for native sovereignty had already been fought many times before, and that even after the encampment was gone, their anti-colonial struggle would continue. In Our History is the Future, Nick Estes traces traditions of indigenous resistance that led to the no-DAPL movement. Our History is the Future is at once a work of history, a manifesto, and an intergenerational story of resistance. I recently did a really incredible, in-depth, lengthy interview with Nick as well. You can find it at thedigradio.com. You should also really buy and read the book. Our History is the Future, 
Standing Rock versus the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Long History of Indigenous Resistance by Nick Estes. Out now from Verso Books. I want to talk about how things end in Atlanta. Atlanta has for decades been governed by Black politicians and has become known as Black Mecca because of its huge population of Black middle-class people and the vibrancy of Black cultural life. But this was all accompanied by profound resegregation along race and class lines that in some ways is even worse than Jim Crow. And it has included this continuation of destructive urban renewal, including when Black city leaders and the corporate establishment displaced low-income Black people to build the infrastructure for the 1996 Olympics. How did this longer conflict over integration lead to today's Atlanta, this system of accelerating fragmentation and sprawl combined with the theme parkization of downtown? In the 1940s and 50s and 60s, especially in the 50s and 60s, African-Americans in Atlanta were voting in large numbers, unlike a lot of parts of the South. And so an alliance developed between the white business elite and the black political establishment, which was also very much part of the black business elite. And the white elites were in control, but they had this working relationship to keep the white working class reactionaries out of politics, they thought, and promote growth. And so African-Americans would push for civil rights advances, but they also operated within the larger politics that growth was good and capitalism would help race relations and make Atlanta a modern, modern city. And in the mid-1960s, it began to become clear that Atlanta was going to have a black majority soon. The white elite tried to annex the suburbs north of the city, just like they had annexed the exclusive Buckhead neighborhood in 1950, and it backfired. African-Americans opposed it as an effort to dilute their voting power, and white suburbanites wanted no part of Atlanta by then in terms of being inside the city. And so after that, it was kind of a matter of time until you have a black mayor and Maynard Jackson gets elected early 1970s. And there's a real tension, I think, between his efforts to implement affirmative action and bring a measure of justice to the more dis- disenfranchised and impoverished parts of Atlanta and the fact that the white business elite still had so much economic power and control and they really had to work together in a lot of ways. And one of the most common practices that black elites and white elites supported was urban renewal. When they built the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and brought the sports teams to Atlanta professional sports in the mid 60s, they displaced more than 10,000 African-American residents And middle-class Black leaders largely supported that program. They saw these as slum neighborhoods that needed to be improved. And so when Black leaders gained political power, they 
still generally support growth strategies, the sports teams, the metropolitan development, the highways and the rest that always have disproportionate consequences for poor neighborhoods. And the Olympic, is, to me, the Olympics were the kind of perfect manifestation of the capitalist ideology that Atlanta has always trumpeted as the reason it's a truly a new South or a global city. You have a black mayor, Andrew Young, and a white suburban business lawyer, Billy Payne, who are teaming up to go around the world saying that Atlanta has conquered racial injustice and Atlanta should host the Olympics because of its great interracial tradition of peace and prosperity in the service of capitalist development. And that was the message Atlanta sent to the world. And there were poor black neighborhoods that got moved out of the way once again for the 1996 Olympics. And they were, they were expendable. They were heavily policed and homeless people were swept up. And this was part of the project of black political elites, no less than it had been for white business elites and political elites in earlier generations. Stepping back, white suburban innocence really relies upon centering white children's innocence. In Atlanta, the women who led the moderate integration movement emphasized their maternal identity as suburban housewives and charged that massive resistance would close schools and that as a result, innocent white children would be harmed. It, it functioned, I think, intentionally as a sort of strategic essentialism, their, their foregrounding of their maternal identity to depoliticize the issue. And then in Charlotte, by contrast, anti-busing suburbanites argued that their innocent white children were being sacrificed for a liberal social experiment. How is it that both these pro-modern integration parents and these anti-busing parents are both making protecting innocent white children their point of reference? And how is it that suburbs come to be this place for the, the protection of innocent children, this extension of the domestic sphere from the, the particular home to the entire neighborhood? Well, I think that having a metropolitan landscape that's organized around single-family homes, exclusionary-zoned neighborhood schools, shopping malls nearby, Little League, and all the rest is a children-centered landscape in the first place. And you know, saying that this is about protecting innocent children is one of the deepest strains in American politics and all sides are always trying to say, you know, this is about the children. But when you start talking about school politics, it really was a contest to see which side would win with child-centered arguments. So segregationists said that integration would be terrible for white children, that there would be miscegenation and racial mixing and crime in the schools. And the white moderates and liberals in Atlanta countered by saying, actually, we'll create a system in which only the smartest black students will be able to come to the 
white schools through freedom of choice. It'll be the children of college educated parents. Actually, they'll probably raise the standards. And I don't really see the opposition to massive resistance for the sake of children was actually a very similar rhetoric to the opposition to busing for the sake of children. In both cases, they were about keeping white children in the nearby schools that were perceived as safe and educationally superior and bringing a controlled number of black children into the schools without disrupting the larger structures. So, I mean, indeed, the same, the same Atlanta parents who supported compliance with minimal integration and opposed massive resistance, if faced with the situation that the Charlotte suburbanites were faced with, it seems like there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have employed the very same sort of arguments to resist more substantive integration via two-way busing. I think those neighborhoods in Atlanta would have resisted just like um, white neighborhoods everywhere in the country resisted. There's no, there's no white neighborhood anywhere ever that has been enthusiastic about a two-way integration plan. I mean, you can look at what's been happening in New York City recently where it took huge efforts just to do some minimal changes to some of the you know, magnet type programs in some of the elite public schools. And so the, but the point I would make, there were liberals, white liberals in Atlanta and in Charlotte who are allied with the civil rights movement, who were strong believers in integration, but the arguments that they tended to make for accepting and complying with court orders was less a racial justice argument than an argument that it would be beneficial for black and white students to go to school together because they were going to work together in you know a capitalist economy that they needed to be exposed to racial difference at young ages because this is the way that a well-oiled society functions and even even the white liberals who strongly believed in racial justice tended to articulate their support for desegregation in the language of this will be good for white children because it will expose them to diversity. And even if they believed in more radical arguments, they made that on pragmatic grounds. But your book really makes it clear how sacrificing bedrock moral principles for the sake of of pragmatism can really serve to legitimate a sort of politics that's not only piecemeal or or partial, but that's ultimately really reactionary. Yeah, there was one white liberal woman in Charlotte uh, whom I interviewed, and she was one of my favorite people that I came across. And she went around all the time. She eventually ran for the school board. She was a longtime liberal activist. And she said, we have to stop talking about this as it's time to share the burdens. Black children aren't burdens. We need to talk about integration in terms of opportunity. And a lot of black parents would say, we're tired of the language of shared sacrifice or burdens. We need to really think about this as dismantling 
an unjust system and creating true equal opportunity. But that kind of language was really few and that's really rare to find, especially in white areas that there was talk of compliance with the courts. There was talk of this won't actually be that disruptive. But the truth is there's no way to dismantle an entire metropolitan system built on racial and class injustice without it being extremely disruptive. And busing, as we've discussed, was a kind of partial remedy that exchanged students during the day, but it didn't really challenge the larger fundamental structures. And it didn't, I didn't write about this in the Silent Majority book, but over all of this are discourses about crime and drugs and delinquency and ideas that exposure to integration levels will also be exposing white students to these new kinds of dangers that black students would bring into their schools or that they would find in black neighborhoods. And that's very much, a, that kind of child-centered discourse is very much a part of the politics of the 50s, 60s, and 70s as well. Yeah, the research you're doing right now, uh, which I, I read two articles from, is about how from the 1950s on, the creation of the drug war relied on portraying youthful suburban drug users as innocent victims contrasted against black and Latino urban pushers. And a lot of attention has been paid, rightfully so, to, to the demonization of, of the racialized dealer other. But you show that it's also key here is the construction of, of the white victim, the, the suburban white team, teen from a so-called good family. Explain this this uh, deeply carceral edge to the politics of suburban innocence, why and why it was also that, as you write, quote, mass suburbanization intensified anxieties about the delinquency of affluent teenagers. So I'm finishing up a book right now called The Suburban Crisis, and it's about the war on drugs and white middle class youth from the 1950s through the 1980s. And I started thinking about how urban historians who've talked a lot about housing and school segregation and battles for integration hadn't really talked much about crime and drug politics and especially the role of white middle-class neighborhoods in protecting themselves from outside threats as they perceived it. And I was researching in California and I came across a 1956 pamphlet that the state of California had put out two years after the Brown decision that said, the most effective way to keep your child from becoming a delinquent or a narcotics addict is to move into a homogenous neighborhood <laughs> where everybody else is of the same racial and economic background as you. That's a little on the and nose. Well, it's an explicit <laughs> endorsement of segregation by wow. the state of California in the mid-50s. Incredible. But to me, as I've done the research, it's also a complete misunderstanding of where the danger really is for white middle-class youth. The fear in California was that 
narcotics pushers, especially Mexicans, were selling drugs to white youth. And as I've gotten into the research, white youth in the suburbs who did acquire illegal drugs generally drove to Tijuana, bought them themselves, brought them back and distributed them, especially marijuana to other white students. So this book is related to the silent majority in that I wanted to take an issue, in this case, mass incarceration, the war on crime and the war on drugs that has generally been interpreted as a problem caused by conservative Republicans and racial backlash and actually explore how it works in terms of white middle-class privilege and how both political parties have tended to defend the white middle-class victim in the war on drugs. And by that, I mean discussion that drives drug policy and shapes laws since the 1950s has imagined three types of drug criminals. The predatory narcotics addict, perceived as non-white, who threatens law-abiding citizens. The trafficker, street dealer, which is imagined as black and non-white. And then the victim. The victim means white suburban youth in particular who are becoming drug addicts or breaking drug laws and why they get to the status of victims, but other groups who are just participants in the same market don't. That's the research question that's driving this new project. And why was it that, as you write, quote, mass suburbanization intensified anxieties about the delinquency of affluent teenagers? Is it is it that the security promised by segregation and suburbanization automatic sort of automatically conjures up the specter of its vulnerability to invasion? So mass suburbanization in the 1950s, when the government is supporting white middle class and working class families to move to the suburbs in mass, is really sold to Americans as a utopian project that you will move into this kind of neighborhood and everything will be perfect. It'll be safe. The schools will be great. We're going to have Little League. We're going to have Girl Scouts. It's going to be a child-centered environment. And the argument that I make is a utopian project will always collapse into crisis because it's an impossible ideal. The truth is white middle-class youth tend to break the laws and get in trouble about as much as any other youth in any other kinds of places. But when they do it, it seems like a crisis that has to have some sort of cause. And often it's about looking for the external villains. Because the whole idea of the suburbs is that it's not supposed to happen there. That's like the the premise ideologically of the suburbs or one of them. And then you think about every TV show we watch, it's either the utopian leave it to beaver ideal or it's the dystopian nightmare that American culture can barely talk about affluent white suburbs without either presenting them as utopian, heroic, and perfect or as dysfunctional where beneath the surface everything 
is, you know, incredibly pathological and there's no middle ground culturally to talk about the suburbs. It's just regular places where regular people live. The political system lionizes suburbanites and politicians talk about how they're the heroes of the nation, Nixon's silent majority, Bill Clinton's forgotten Americans and forgotten middle class. And so the truth is things happen out there just like anywhere else, but it's hard to process. And so the tendency is to to go find an external villain to um, say that's what's causing the criminality or the delinquency or the problems of white children. And to call in the criminal justice system to crack down on the the, the people who who pose a threat. There's you write about this huge public panic over Mexican teens in in Los Angeles in 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 the 50s and then I think again in the 60s if I remember correctly who are traveling around in so-called rat packs and in the context of of, of the nascent drug war the the suburbanite activists call on on law enforcement to crack down on the those who are invading the suburbs who are threatening the the suburb security in Atlanta and and elsewhere throughout the south in the integration context moderates use the language of law and order to promote compliance with judicially mandated integration which contrasted against both the lawlessness of massive resistance but also i think at least implicitly in contrast to militant civil rights demonstrators and that of course was the same language embraced by nixon who was constantly talking about law and order what explains the centrality of of law and order? How did that ideology function in the suburbs so felicitously? Well, let me come at that for from a couple of ways. First, back to your original question. I was interested in California that some of the same kinds of suburban parents who I wrote about in the South as being against massive resistance and against busing were behind a mass movement to demand harsh mandatory minimum sentences for drug pushers in the language of the day. And this is in the 1950s. More than a million people in California signed petitions asking for the death penalty for anybody who sold heroin or marijuana to a juvenile. And as you might pick up, there was no understanding of the difference between marijuana and heroin really in this crusade. And the imagination was that Mexican hoodlums and gangsters were bringing drugs across the border and addicting good young people from wholesome neighborhoods. And so that kind of, that's before the 1960s and Nixon's law and order campaigns and what we see as the really the roots of mass incarceration and even in the early 50s some of the first mandatory minimum laws were racially targeted in states like California and Illinois was another one racially targeted laws to try to incarcerate narcotics pushers so that law and order element has been part of drug war politics for a long time. But what's equally important to pick up on is the way that the language of pusher 
that somebody's coming in and forcing an innocent person to become an addict, it then decriminalizes other participants in the job mar- in the drug market. And so if somebody's a pusher and deserves a mandatory minimum sentence, somebody else in the transaction is a victim and they need to be protected from the pushers. And that's not how the drug market actually works. Consumers generally acquire drugs purposefully, but the category of the pusher is a racialized category that really means non-white, gang, hoodlum, foreign. And the category of the victim is a racialized category that means otherwise law-abiding white youth who has been seduced or forced into this uh, nefarious behavior. In the context of this early suburbanite-driven drug war, was the international border with Mexico seen in a way as an extension of the neighborhood borders that maintained residential segregation? That's a great question. There were intensive efforts in California in the mid to late 1950s to close the border completely to juveniles. The San Diego Sheriff's uh, Department set up a blockade in which they would illegally send people under 18 back to their back home. They would detain them and have their parents come get them if they looked at them and decided they were trying to cross the border for illegal purposes because you could go into Tijuana and you could drink if you were underage in the United States. And so there's very much a sense that the border between Mexico and Southern California is racialized and talked about in the same way that the kind of imagined border between the suburbs and the ghetto is in the in the American metropolitan areas. In Los Angeles, for example, the idea would be that a good kid from a white middle-class neighborhood in Los Angeles is at risk from East Los Angeles, where the Mexican-American barrio is, and also from Mexico itself. Because the East, the, the East LA barrio is like a recapitulation of the threat of 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 Mexico as a whole. Yeah, in some ways, like a foreign racialized space within the United States. And so there are a lot of similarities between the ways that the border and the, uh, you know, the border towns in Mexico are talked about and the ways that East LA is figured in drug politics. And I would add, until the late 1960s, Almost half of all narcotics arrests in the entire country happen in Southern California alone. So the proximity of the border created not only anxiety and fear, but a market that allowed young people and entrepreneurs from Southern California to easily go into Mexico and come back. So it was both a real opportunity as well as a kind of hyped, racialized border zone. There was all kinds of discussion in the late 50s, early 60s about Tijuana as the cesspool of civilization. The Los Angeles Times won a Pulitzer Prize for a 1959 series that if you read it now, it just seems straight up racist. 
toward Mexico and Tijuana, but that was just normal American journalism at the time. Especially because Southern California, California as a whole, seized from Mexico is sort of premised on this idea that it's some sun-baked, God-blessed wasp utopia at the end of empire. And many of the white families moving there, you know, they were coming out in, in by the millions in the late 1940s into the 50s, working in the Cold War military industrial economy. They're coming from the Midwest and Texas and other places. And so it's it's the suburban story kind of in extremists. You have all sorts of newcomers, white middle-class suburbanites benefiting from federal policies who see, uh, who, who imagine California as a place without a history and don't think about, it's not just Mexican, you know, border. There's all kinds of Mexican American communities that have been agricultural communities that are just bulldozed over to build these new white suburbs in California it's a it's a bigger story. It's to get back if if you don't mind briefly to the southern yeah, please. strategy argument that we were talking about. One of my biggest arguments against the southern strategy is Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan developed their racial politics Orange County in the place that they actually lived, Southern California. And everything that they did in national politics that's attributed to the influence of the Deep South and George Wallace, they were already doing in California in the 1950s and 1960s, bashing communism, bashing the fair housing movement, bashing welfare recipients. They didn't need to go to the South to learn racial backlash politics. They did that in California to come to power in the first place. You, you argue that these anti-busing and anti-drug movements, these, these suburban movements as a whole, are, are middle-class suburban forms of populism. What I wanted to do in the Silent Majority book is show that when pushed on their privilege, affluent white suburbanites would form social movements, protest, rally, just like anybody else. And... Generally, when you see the pictures of people spilling into the streets, it's social movements of non-white groups, or it's the labor movement in the 30s, or it's a backlash movement in a white working class neighborhood in the 70s. And there's not that many times that a public policy directly confronts affluent white suburbanites and that's what court order busing did and they responded by fighting back in a kind of populist way and by that i mean they presented themselves as the true americans as they as said, the people that's right as the hard-working tax-paying majority as the people who were being oppressed by both those below them non-whites and civil rights activists and elites, in this case, judges who were coming into their communities. And so in California, the anti-drug movement, I think it had a populist aspect, but it was more of a letter writing and petition campaign that 
got politicians to move pretty quickly. It wasn't a mass movement Mm -hmm. in the way that anti-busing was, but white law-breaking in the drug markets was also not a mass phenomenon in the 1950s. Uh, and when the by the time that it does become a mass phenomenon in the mid to late 1960s, it has a very different connotation of political radicalism and discontent by by a, in a generation gap. No longer being it's no longer being blamed on Mexicans and outside pushers to the same extent. I want to talk about the the long-term legacy of suburban radical centrism. Today, more suburbs are more racially diverse, and more suburbs, especially inner-ring suburbs, are working class or poor. The opioid crisis is killing a lot of people from suburbia, and it's also leading to severe prosecutions of suburban users for homicide when they provide a lethal dose to a friend, people who in a prior moment might have been more likely to have been portrayed as as fellow victims. My question is, are the wages of suburbanization wearing thin? Is Is the suburban system in crisis? And does that, alongside the gentrification of cities, indicate that the spatial organization of American politics as we've known them are undergoing a massive change? So the first way I would address this question is to emphasize that the suburbs have always been more diverse than the prevailing stereotypes. And the groups that I wrote about in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the college-educated, affluent white suburbs of Atlanta and Charlotte, they did not represent a majority of suburbanites even at that time. They were just the most powerful suburbanites and the ones who commanded the respect of politicians and the news media. And so their concerns came to the fore, but they were always working class neighborhoods, outlying communities. The suburbs have have always been more diverse, but as you're referencing in the last 30, 40 years, that's really been completely blown open. The suburbs are now, the home to a majority of poor people in metropolitan regions, a majority of new immigrants are settling in the suburbs, a majority of suburban households are no longer the stereotypical heteronormative family of a married man and a woman with children, and suburbs come in all shapes and sizes. And so in that sense, there has really been a sorting out. I think more and more of um, affluent professionals are trying to live in cities. The question is what happens when they have kids? And for the most part, they're either going to put them in private schools, elite magnet schools, or move, you know, move to the suburbs. But there's been real demographic changes. People don't have kids as early or, or as often as they were and so there's been a big, you know, there's, there's been real transformations. Questions that you're bringing up, downward mobility in the suburbs, that's been happening at least since the 70s in the auto suburbs and, you know, places like here in Michigan. 
the the ratcheting up of the war on drugs and the opioid crisis i think is new in in scale i don't think there's much new at all in in suburbanites participating in Ill- illegal activity but you know a law enforcement system that's going to bring down the law hard on suburban so-called dealers or suppliers that's that is in, in itself is relatively new and i guess i just come back to the the point that the suburbs that we imagine as normative are actually quite small in terms of the general metropolitan population we're talking when we think about the north shore of chicago or affluent neighborhoods outside la or upscale mcmansions in atlanta places in Boston like Concord or Newton that most people don't live there. And those places I think are still doing well. The places that Nixon was targeting when he talked about the silent majority, the college educated professional classes, they're doing well. Both parties cater to them. They have the resources to keep their children out of trouble when they do break the law. There's intense competition for colleges. But the Levittowns are not the same. Exactly. And there's so much downward mobility, you know, being hit by healthcare costs and bankruptcy proceedings. And there's a lot of shared economic pain across racial lines in this country. And the mythology of suburbia is that a blue collar industrial suburb in Pennsylvania has a lot of the same political interests as a wealthy technocratic suburb of Boston. And that's just not true. That the, the, the kind of fantasy of populism, especially conservative populism, is that working class and upper middle class white voters have the same interests and will fit into the same political coalition against their enemies. And there's a way for the Democrats and progressives to reach out to the real economic problems uh, that are being faced by a majority of Americans, whether they live in cities or suburbs, whether they're white or non-white, even whether they're college educated or not. But they have to get out of their mind that the most important voters in America are the wealthy, college educated, Silicon Valley type suburbanites. And as long as we imagine the American voting population or the public at large as sort of the American standard writ large, we're misunderstanding the kind of areas that most people live in that are not able to insulate themselves from, you know, from problems and hoard their resources the way that affluent suburbs are. And I would add affluent urban neighborhoods. If, if anything, I think the wealthiest suburbs and the wealthiest urban neighborhoods are actually quite similar now and have more in common than they do with almost anybody else. Well, that leads into my last question, Well, which is that suburbanites have become the focus not only of Nixon and Reagan Republicans and Republicans across the board, but also, of course, of, of new Democrats like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and the Democratic Party this past midterm election. And this is something I discussed at length in my interview with Lily Geismer. But one, 
how was it that the suburban revolt reshaped not only conservative politics everywhere, but liberal politics as well? And what might a more working class oriented politics, a coalition premised on, on a multiracial working class alliance, a left populism maybe, what, what might that look like? Lily and I um, both argue that the Democratic Party has moved decisively to become a party of affluent suburbanites and urbanites, technocrats and professionals. And when it's in terms of white voters and that that is as important as the racial backlash strategy of Republicans, liberals like to make themselves feel good by blaming electoral trends on devious and you know race baiting republicans but they don't look in the mirror enough and and say you know why can't we win voters who are really suffering economic hardship why aren't the unions you know a force anymore in american politics and i think that this is rooted in the era that we've been talking about the idea that came out of the late 60s and early 70s in particular was that working class whites were hopelessly reactionary, that they were racist, that they wouldn't accept social justice. And these affluent suburbanites that both parties chase also support racial injustice. They just don't say it out loud and it's more embedded in the built environment. So my worry is that as long as the Democratic Party the kind of Chuck Schumer vision that an affluent white upper middle class college educated woman in the suburbs of Philadelphia is just a more important voter than a working class white voter in a downwardly mobile part of, um, you know, other part of Pennsylvania, that the Democrats are not going to be able to promote public policies that address the real needs of of non-white and white voters in the working class, in the solid middle class, and of course uh, the poor. And so, and that the, and, and and it can't just be an argument about the political pragmatism about whether you know which they really proved themselves pretty wrong on in 2016 when Schumer and Ed, Ed Rendell said for every uh, you know working class voter that Trump gets will. We'll pick up two two suburbanites in the Philly suburbs. That uh, they both said the same thing, which made, makes it clear that it was a something that that a lot of party leadership w- was banking on. It, so it, there's the strategic question, which has 2016 as a negative example, 2018 as arguably a more positive example. But then there's the more substantive political question of what sort of politics it leads to, and from a a left perspective, it leads to to a really unacceptable sort of set of policies that suburban that affluent suburbanites are going to demand. That that's right. And so on the one hand, I think if you want to make presidential elections the the focus, you can tell a story since the 1964 in which the Democrats have only won the presidential election during an economic recession. Carter, Clinton in 92, and then Barack Obama, and they've been able to win back working class and middle class white voters, at least enough of them, along with mobilizing their their suburban, you know, base that they covet. But that that's really an economic driven kind of exception 
to a general rule. But but as we've discussed, what I'm concerned about is even if you win a presidential election, what policies are you going to promote? Clinton talked about universal health care and Obama also did. And then the policy was sold badly and it was really like a corporate approach. And Obama, after the recession and the bailout, helped the Wall Street and the auto companies way more than regular homeowners. And so the Democrats, it's not a progressive party, right? I mean, there's hope in the progressive wings, but as long as the Democratic Party imagines the ideal voter as a white, affluent, suburban professional combined with their non-white base, they're not going to mobilize non-white voters with exciting policies, and they're not going to promote the kind of policies that have a chance of building a bigger multiracial working class electorate. I agree. Well, Matt Lassiter, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Matthew D. Lassiter is professor of history at the University of Michigan and the author of The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South. His forthcoming book is The Suburban Crisis, Crime, Drugs, and White Middle Class America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, what kept the two factions apart, therefore, was not any so-called principles. It was their material conditions of existence, two different kinds of property. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and now also Zach Nin. Welcome, Zach. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.